Welcome, everyone, to Season 4, Episode 134 of the Premier Pod. I'm your host, Yashbika, joined by my co-host, Tyler Chan. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Ralph Raniak's Ralph first victory as Manchester United manager in his debut match of Chelsea falling to West Ham, Liverpool getting um, some luck from Divac Origi coming from the grave to rescue them, a three points right there, and then Arsenal once again losing after their 10-match unbeaten streak. Uh, but to th- start things off, we have West, or excuse me, Manchester United beating Crystal Palace at home 1-0. It was Ralph Raniak's opening debut victory as Manchester United's interim coach. Um, thanks to Fred actually getting a kind of a wonder goal, um, scoring on his right foot, basically looping it over the keeper. And then, you know, him and Alex Talis, they uh, did look a little bit of a samba dance after that. But overall, the game was... Uh, it was interesting. Um, you you could you could see at least a little bit after one training session some of the stuff or patterns of play that Manchester United are trying to do now with under Ralph. Um, we saw Manchester United players play with a really high press and a really intense press for about fifteen to twenty minutes in the opening twenty minutes of the game, but obviously um, it dropped off a little bit. And in the second half, it dropped off a bit as well. But then they were able to pick it up with the substitutions they made um, and just you know the halftime team talk, but. I mean, what we saw in those opening 20 minutes were just a, a very much so a more organized press within United where we had the forwards, Ronaldo, Rashford, Bruno, you know, chasing down the keeper. Then you had the wingbacks or not not the wingbacks, but the fullbacks of Dallo and Telles. They're pushing up and almost um, they were talking about in the broadcast that essentially the way they were set up off the ball and with the ball, it was essentially a 4 2 2 Two. So it was literally a back of four, a back four, and then you had two midfielders, another two, and then another two, essentially creating like this really solid shape in the middle. And obviously it left him a little bit exposed on the wings um, when it came to like the opposing wingers. But um, the way that the system was set up to just be able to press and have like a teammate to cover for you in that organizational structure they have set up, um, it just worked really well. And I'm excited to see what will happen once Ralph gets a little bit more training sessions underneath him and can really get his assistant coaches there, all the people that he wants. Because what we saw was a potential of like what could be a really exciting Manchester United side and also kind of a dangerous Manchester United side where we saw Crystal Palace players really were kind of shaken in the first 20 minutes where they couldn't get a pass together. They were struggling to, you know, link up play. And you saw when a Crystal Palace player like had their back against the wall or they had their back towards goal, a United player was pressing them. And that basically led to turnovers, errors, corners, you know, chances, uh, you know, throw-ins. I mean, all the stuff you see teams like Liverpool, Chelsea, um, all the top teams across Europe doing, Manchester United were kind of doing, and we saw just a more structured shape uh, for their squad. And uh, yeah, I was just impressed. I think it's going to take some time, obviously, but those first 20 minutes were definitely a glimpse of hope of what could be a, a really exciting um, finish to the season, I would say the you know last six months of the season for you. I heard a really interesting stat for Ralph Radnick's opening game where it was the first time Manchester United won that many balls in the opposition. Oh yeah, third. true. Like since, since Sir Alex, yeah, since Sir Alex Ferguson's era, I believe at this point is like almost a decade ago. Yeah. So I mean that kind of goes to show how conservative the other managers have been since Sir Alex Ferguson mm-hmm. and also how aggressive Sir Alex Ferguson was in his lineups back in the days. So this 4-2-2-2 formation, personally, one of my favorite formations in 
not only real life and also like in FIFA, just because it's a really aggressive formation where it's kind of a take on the traditional 4-4-2 formation, except the left and right wingers or left and right midfielders are just higher up and just always forward and just always kind of keeping the fullbacks of the opposition at bay. Mm-hmm. And it allows for a higher press and just a constant press because they're just naturally standing just closer to the defenders by themselves already. And also having just two strikers up top instead of the Oligon and Solskjaer classic 4-2-3-1, just having one guy solo up there. Now there's two. Mm-hmm. And that does make a difference because now the whole defense has to watch out for two people rather than just one. Yeah. So it's just like these little things that Ralph Radnick already within one training session yeah, is bringing. Yeah, it's like implementing already into this Manchester United side. It's looking it's looking promising. And yeah. I, I will say it was a little vulnerable at times for Manchester United. I was kind of surprised with some of the chances Crystal Palace had. Like there's some free shots from Wilfred Zaha and Christian Benteke, of course. Or no, uh, IU. And I was like, well, I mean, this is kind of what you what you get when you play in this kind of way. <laughs> You're going to have to just deal with those Shana shots from outside the box here and there. But it was a lot more expansive and kind of exciting for Manchester United. Yeah, and I, one thing I do agree. I think there were a lot of chances or a decent amount of chances that Crystal Palace could have had. They could have actually taken the lead right before United did in the second half with Andre Ayew, but they missed it. Um, but another thing was interesting is that um, I don't know if you saw, but there was times in the 90th minute where Ronaldo was actually running and chasing a loose ball all the way to the opposing Crystal Palace half in the 90th minute. And there were, were a couple of times where throughout the game, actually, where I saw Ronaldo, you know, chasing loose balls, you know, chasing down the keeper, you know, applying some pressure to the, you know, the fullback, center back. And Ralph Reniak, after the Arsenal game, he actually said that, you know, he wants to have Cristiano Ronaldo part of his plans. Like he wants to make him a focal point, wants him to be the main guy in the team. And it just shows that um, even Messi has done it at times. It just shows that, you know, these guys, even though the narrative is that they're more, I wouldn't say lackadaisical, obviously they're very potent on the offensive side, but when it comes to the defensive side, they kind of take the brakes off and, you know, cool it. I think when called upon, I think we've seen, that Ronaldo is able to do that type of work when you need him to. Obviously, it's not going to be the full 90 minutes. You need players like maybe like a Bruno, Rashford, some of the younger players to kind of carry the full press. But we've seen at times where Ronaldo can do it and is willing to do it. So I think that gives a lot of hope that, you know, this isn't going to be one of those situations where Ronaldo is just not going to buy into anything Ralph says and just do his own thing. And I think that you have a probably one of the best players in the world accommodating to the style of the manager. I think it only helps with the whole team kind of buying into the philosophy of rough and trying to implement everything he's trying to do with the high pressing and the way he's trying to play and it's basically yeah. said i don't care if you're old you're gonna just yeah. <laughs> you're still pressing no matter what exactly and i feel like Ronaldo's one of the few folks out there who's 36 and can still probably press it's just yeah. you know we'll we'll see how his fitness goes because he's you know he's usually known as one of the most fit people on earth yeah just based on his diet and like, like LeBron James of the soccer world. Yeah, basically. And I feel like the way you're describing it too, is it kind of reminds me of like a basketball player where like, you know, you need a two-way kind of player that can also defend and also, you know, play offense at the same time. Well, you know, on I guess for them, it'd be on the court, but for Ronaldo, it'd be on the pitch. And that's something that, you know, a lot of managers don't really force their players to do. It's like, usually if you're a forward, it's like, all right, you just stay forward. And then, you know, let the defenders do defending. And then, you know, they're up front. 
then the defenders just kind of sit there and then the forwards do their thing. But Ralph Ratnick's kind of having this kind of two-way player kind of notion now where it's like, all right, if everyone, if we don't have the ball, everyone's on defense. And then once you have the ball, it's like, all right, everyone's on offense and then just go, go, go. Because I, I haven't seen a United side also press that high sure. as a unit like that before too. Where I was like, man, if someone just runs through this defense, if anyone had the pace, <laughs> they just run past everyone, they could. But, I mean, that's also the kind of risk that you play with Manchester United under Radnick now, where it's, it's a lot more open. And then certain players like Fred's just going to have to run around a lot and hopefully plug up those holes that just open up from just running around with everyone just kind of doing their own thing almost. Just chasing down people like bees to honey. If that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I will say that the this system, I guess, in a lot of ways, it does allow for a little bit, in a, in a sense, a little bit of cover because in the past, when we were seeing players kind of press for United, it was kind of individual pressing where you just had one player or two players kind of just doing their own thing. And that left a big hole in the side because then you had players trying to make up for the gaps that those players were missing. And then that allowed even more space. I think now... Um, we're seeing that, okay, if the center backs are pushing up to press, then the midfielders, there was a couple of times where we just saw like midfielders swarm one player. And yeah, sometimes the ball got out, but a lot of times when they were able to win the ball back, uh, it it meant that, you know, they were able to recycle the ball really quickly and get it out to their attackers and, you know, kind of form play that way. But um, one other, I guess two other things on this game were um, I wanted to quickly mention the, I guess, midfield pivot I guess you could say now of McTominay and Fred, uh, commonly known as McFred. And I know in the beginning of the season, a lot of pundits were kind of screaming for McTominay to kind of take over the CDM spot as like the lone holding midfielder. And, you know, it was very interesting. I think there was a lot of hope that maybe McTominay, given his age, I think he's 25 now, um, maybe he could have developed a little bit more his passing and kind of be that more like quarterback from the, midfielder position for United where he can break break up play. He's a big presence. He has the passing ability, technical ability to do it. But um, what we've seen this season is unfortunately, he just really hasn't developed that style of the, or I guess that part of the game. And we're seeing the likes of Fred. Um, If you've ever watched Fred when he's played for the Brazilian national team, he actually plays a lot differently than he does with Manchester United because Usually when Fred plays with the national team, he's playing with the, alongside Casemiro, Fabinho, any one of Brazil's holding midfielders. And that allows Fred to kind of play almost that combative, like box-to-box midfielder role where he can just go up and down, you know, contribute on the attack, run around, chase loose balls on the defensive side. But it's not his lone responsibility to be that sole sitter. And I think... The problem is with Fred um, with Manchester United is that we've asked him to kind of be that sole sitting midfielder. And a lot of times that kind of leaves him vulnerable. But when he plays alongside McTominay, when he's when McTominay is not a very complete, I guess, holding midfielder of his own, you're seeing a lot of deficiencies that Fred has to deal with when he plays alongside McTominay. But when you see Fred play with the Brazilian national team, he's a lot more confident on the ball. It just seems like he knows what he's doing. And I feel like under Ralph's system, as I said last week, I think um, Fred is really going to thrive. And, you know, this goal hopefully is the beginning of kind of a re-resurrection of Fred and kind of showing what United paid for him and kind of showing the the player that we, that a lot of people, I guess, were hyping when he was with, um, I believe, like Shakhtar Donetsk, right? Donetsk, yep. Yeah. That was um, <laughs> the 
Ukrainian Brazil right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all all the Brazilians like went through there, Bernard and everyone. But um, I'm excited for Fred. I think he he can really benefit from playing alongside a really good midfielder, a holding midfielder. And you know, I think he's just he has that capability to just be that player. Almost, I wouldn't say Conte like, but almost a player where he just can kind of chase loose balls always willing to do the dirty work, can contribute uh, a little bit in attack, has the technical ability to dribble past um, a couple people, play some passes. And yeah, I think he'll he'll just be a really good player once he gets played alongside a really good holding midfielder or a decent one that can kind of handle being the holding midfielder for United. I mean, originally Fred was also deemed as the potential for a player that's just all around. Like a yeah. player that's like Rude Hullet, where it's just you can do. I mean, Rude Hullet's like a legend, but <laughs> like, you know, kind of like that kind of player. Yeah. Where you can do a little bit of everything. Although, like, might not excel in one particular thing, it's really hard to find a player that can just do a little bit of everything and just sit in the midfield, get you the ball back, play the pass, and occasionally score a goal. Yeah. And Fred also is just kind of a wild card because, I mean, <laughs> even in the previous game, he scored a goal. It was the reason why they conceded a penalty and then assisted a goal. Yeah, sister goal. It's he does a little bit of everything, and he makes. But I mean, he makes impact whether it's good or bad. But under uh, Ralph Radnick, this game he scored a wonder goal, and having the confidence to even take that shot, as opposed to the previous game, he tried a chip shot that you know went like <laughs> ten feet. Whereas this game, he scored a, a worldy of a finesse shot, just far post. Um, I feel like a little bit of confidence back into Fred has definitely helped, but. I mean, we'll have to see because he almost went to Man City at one point. Yeah, like that's how much Pep, Pep really praise he him. had from like, yeah, from Pep Guardiola and just the world. And he he chose, or I guess I'm not sure if he chose Manchester United, but he ended up at Manchester United. It's just been pretty subpar. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie for the past couple of seasons, where it's like he's worth 40 million pounds, <laughs> and people were just making fun of him the whole time. It's just, man, I wish Fred was on the bench. You have Donny Van de Beek. You don't want to use him. He's just gonna use Fred. But, I mean, right now, if Fred's just going to keep looking like he did this past game and maybe even the game before, it's looking like he's back on the ascent and kind of proving his worth. Yeah. But, I mean, this Fred, Mick Fred right here, it's yeah, going to be... It might be the beginning of the end because there was a couple clips on Twitter of McTominay where they were showing from the Arsenal match and I believe the Chelsea match as well, where McTominay doesn't do the best job of kind of showing himself to be available for the ball. And also he is not the most composed when making passes. It's almost like he's firing passes into players when he could be playing a little bit more finesse in them or just a, you know, slight Mm -hmm. more touch to it. And that's kind of been the biggest problem with McTominay's kind of the composure of handling, you know, being in the center of the midfield where you're going to have a ton of pressure where you're, you're going to need to be able to drop your shoulder, you know, make a, make a couple players miss and then get the ball out. Um, I think unfortunately it just seems like McTominay now is just almost like a big, big bulky guy that can just break up play and that's kind of it and occasionally make the long pass here and there. But, um, yeah, I, I just, it's going to be hard for me to see like a a future for McTominay being, you know, a starting United midfielder unless he, you know, aggressively upgrades his game. But I think there's definitely a lot more potential for Fred to be here for a little bit longer than McTominay. I'm just one of the things I was curious about is like, what does Manchester United, you think, picture McTominay to kind of be like, what kind of player is he? Is he kind of more like a Paul Scholes or is he more kind of like a Mottage or more like a Lampard, if that makes sense? Or, you know, because right now 
he's like a six foot four CDM that's pretty physically aggressive. But as you say, he kind of just, you know, full power <laughs> passes <laughs> to everyone. So it's just kind of wild. And I, I think like, like the, maybe the goal was under when Michael Carrick was still an assistant coach was that maybe, you know, he could be almost Roy Keane, Michael Carrick-esque where he can have the, you know, the bully ability of Roy Keane, but also kind of have like that touch and finesse of Michael Carrick. But it seems like he got the bully part right, but it just, he doesn't have the composure of even Roy Keane on his, you know, Roy Keane was a really composed player, even though he was kind of hot headed and was like physical, Mm -hmm. he could still make a pass. He could still score a goal. You know, that's why he was, you know, a legend in the game, but for McTominay, it's almost like all he has is kind of just physical brute strength and just being like a big bully ball type player. Um, Sounds like Fellaini. Yeah. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Yeah. Only on defense. So Uh, literally almost afro. I mean, that's like a good analogy right there. Almost Fellaini-esque where, you know, you're just kind of really only getting someone that can only make like sideways passes or occasionally, you know, spray the ball out on the wings occasionally. But just, you know, we're like four years under McTominay kind of being an, a regular in the starting 11 and he still is making, you know, very questionable passes, can't really offer himself up in the midfield. So that's why I feel like a lot of United fans are kind of, feel like the time is up for McTominay, but they there's a lot more potential with Fred because at least with Fred, he's kind of has the technical ability to be in the midfield. Hmm. I remember there was, I, I think it was McTominay where there was a post about him learning past techniques, like yeah. how to pass. It was this from season. Michael Carrick. Yeah, it was this season. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if it's too late for that. It's like a 25-year-old man. It's not like you can... It's not like that saying, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like you kind of have how you pass the ball kind of ingrained to you at that point by like 25. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of know like what you've been doing for like, I'm pretty sure you've done like 10,000 passes at that point. Yeah. And maybe being told is like, all right, now you got to do it this way. Even like a slightly different way. I feel like it's just so hard to ingrain. And also I feel like, you know, there's that saying practice makes perfect. I don't know. I feel like there's the, the saying should be more like, as my SAT teacher, I don't want to steal this quote from him, but it's just practice makes permanent. So That's I feel true. like McTominay is more, is more like kind of permanently stuck in this kind of notion where he's like, all right, I'm just going to pass it this one particular way. And that's kind of, that's kind of it. Yeah. So I feel like if there was a need for him to change, which is, there is a need. I, I don't think he will be able to change it within a season. I think it'll yeah. take at least a few years. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not, I think, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. There was a, I feel like there was a player that's famous now, but, you know, in the beginning wasn't that hot or, you know, had a lot of defici- deficiencies in his game. But slowly as the years went by, those deficiencies kind of got masked and he became just a almost like a better version uh, of himself where mm-hmm. he was just a lot more technically refined and had a lot more skill set. I feel like there's someone we like, we know, but I just can't put my... <laughs> I like, just keep thinking Jamie Vardy, but I'm like, that doesn't count. He just <laughs> yeah, literally he, he just came out from, of nowhere. He came out of nowhere. Um, but I know what you're thinking, where it's like someone who's just like kind of on the bench or just someone who doesn't really start, but eventually you just got better over time. Maybe yeah. Ospos? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely players out there that just because McTominay's 25 doesn't mean like he can't get better, but it may be maybe just... a late bloomer. Yeah, but maybe Manchester United, where you're kind of in a high pressure situation, maybe that's not the right place for him to develop into being a better player. 
I don't know. It's tough. I think um, if you talk to a lot of United fans, I think the the kind of the general consensus is that Fred is the one to stay. And then McTominay, you know, is the one that probably needs to go on the bench or uh, maybe need to find like a new club, but uh, not to spend too much time on McTominay and United. But I wanted to quickly mention one last thing are the fullbacks that have been playing for Manchester United for the past, I think, four games now. Yeah, they're uh, different. Yeah. Left back and right back, Alex Telles coming in for Luke Shaw and uh, Diego Dallo coming in for uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Uh, Luke Shaw obviously got a concussion and um, Alex Telles was kind of forced into being in that left back role for, you know, taking over him. And then Aaron Wan-Bissaka, he had a suspension or he didn't have a suspension. He actually got hurt as well. Um, so Diego Dallo was able to come in. Um, for his position. And yeah, they were a little bit shaky in the beginning, but they actually look, you know, pretty solid. I think Alex Telles, I think he's starting to get a lot more confidence and we're starting to see maybe, um, well, actually, I wouldn't even say start to see, we're starting to see a bit of the Porto Alex Telles where he's kind of whipping in balls with his left foot, taking free kicks, you know, you know, scoring some crazy or trying, attempting like some long shots with his like crazy left foot, like using that technique that kind of made him a famous player at Porto. And with Diogo Dalo, we're seeing, I think he still has like a lot of deficiencies on the defensive side of the ball. I think Aaron Wambasaka is definitely a lot better of a player, but you just see like Diego Dalo is just a lot more comfortable when it comes going forward with terms of making passes, with his touches, with his crossing. He's just a lot more comfortable than Wambisaka. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to shout them out. I think they've just been slowly improving and we're starting to see um, maybe some potential and like, you know, really just really good competition for the squad because it's better to have your backup fullbacks playing this well because then it's going to make the quote-unquote starters, you know, reach a higher level to get back their starting 11 spots. Because I think for the foreseeable future, I think um, those two have kind of earned being the starting fullbacks, at least for the time being. Maybe even Diego Dallo is that kind of player you're thinking of too. Or it's, yeah. He kind of was pretty raw coming in. It was also one of those random transfers I've yeah. ever seen. <laughs> Came out of nowhere. Mourinho. Yeah, it's like, all right, we got Dalo. It's like, why? <laughs> so, I mean, that's just one of those players. I mean, he even had a stint at AC Milan, if I yeah, remember last season. Last season. He got a good card in FIFA, but I was just like, that's about it. But <laughs> I mean, like in this this year, it's just been almost as if he disappeared at times. And then, But Alex Tellis has always kind of been in the back of everyone's mind where I feel like he was brought in kind of to be that first team player. Yeah. And then Luke Shaw saw, he's like, oh, I'm about to get my job like sniped from this man. It's like, I probably turn up and then like he did pretty well. And then now Ole's gone. So <laughs> that's also part. It's like, Oh, we, we can actually just tell us more. So I think that's also part of it too. Cause he does bring a little bit of similarities with Luke Shaw where Luke Shaw does, you know, occasionally whip in the cross. Now he somehow scores now. <laughs> Luke Shaw. <laughs> I think, wasn't he the most, yeah, he got the most assists, I believe, in the Euros. Yeah, he also so, scored like the opener for England in the final. Mm-hmm. Too. So I feel like Alex Tellis indirectly maybe influenced Luke Shaw to kind of bring that kind of That's true. stuff into his arsenal. Yeah. But, you know, Alex Tellis has also been one of the key players, I feel like, under Radnick and also under the last games of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, where it's just like, oh, y'all's backup left back is actually pretty good yeah <laughs> it's like yeah you've been keeping like a superpower hidden in a in little chest right there yeah you finally and, opened it yeah and i think that's true for a lot of the kind of fringe players under ole like jesse lingard donny van de Beek. once they get a little bit more comfortable i think you know you're gonna see you know 
kind of the benefits of having such a big squad are, are those players. But yeah, we'll, we'll continue to monitor, obviously, the Rafa Raniak situation at Manchester United. Started off well, 1-0 win, but obviously there's still a long way to go for the rest of the season and uh, see what else happens with them. But kind of a team that's very interesting. I wouldn't say wavering, but uh, has some questionable results after being pretty solid under um, Thomas Tuchel is Chelsea. They lost 3-2 to West Ham. Um, West Ham made a comeback. Chelsea led 1-0, and then uh, West Ham made the comeback to win 3-2 off a random almost shot cross or just a random mishit shot um, by a West Ham defender at Masuaku, and it caught Edward Mendy sleep, you know, sleeping um, as a goalie, and he just couldn't recover in time to save the shot. But uh, this one is just... Um, it's interesting because I, I know we're not, uh, we don't have Champions League in the rundown, but Chelsea also lost 3 2 to Zenit, or they conceded, or, or they drew 3 3 to Zenit. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the first time um, in the Tuchel era where they've actually conceded three goals in back to back games under him. So, very oddly, kind of defensively shaky at the moment. And Edward Mendy, Kepa have conceded goals. Um, Antonio Rudiger seems like he's on his way out, signing a. Like, it looks like all points are that he's going to be signing a pre-contract with Real Madrid. You know, oddly enough, it seems like the champions of Europe. They're just something's a bit off. I know Lukaku got on the scoring sheet again with Zenit finally after, I think like since September he scored his first Chelsea goal. Um, Timo Werner did decently well with Zenit, but um, I don't know. Something's a bit off with Chelsea right now, and I don't know. I think Tuchel kind of needs to get the confidence back because it seems like something is oddly shaky right now with Chelsea. Do you, do you feel like it's like a short-term thing or just the beginning of maybe demise? Because like at Chelsea, I will say <laughs> there's always that stint where it's like, all right, they have a really good start or like a really good year or two. And then it's just that final year. It's sour. It just goes south. Like, But it's not like just a little south. It's just like boom, straight down. I feel like... Uh, you know, I didn't. I did say in the beginning, you know, preseason pod that I don't think Chelsea are going to be as good as people say. You know that they're expecting, but from what I saw, you know, from this season and last season, I think I have enough confidence that they have enough leadership in the squad and Thomas Tuchel that maybe it's just kind of a little blimp in the road um, because they have a lot of lofty goals. They they're still in the title race. They're still you know Champions League. I mean, they they still have their you know eyes on like a lot of the big trophies. So. I think they have enough leadership. I think what's been hurting them is that um, Jorginho, Conte, Kovacic have all kind of been out, you know, sporadically during this run. Um, and once they get those midfielders back, I think it's going to be a lot better because right now they're kind of just relying on Reese James playing in as a filler midfielder, um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek coming in and Ross Barkley coming in. So once they get their midfielders back, I think it's going to help, you know, the situation a lot, I would say. Mm. I also agree just in that I, I don't think this is the start of something bad. I feel like I need more sample size than just two games mm-hmm. to be like, all right, it's the start of the end or <laughs> it's like, oh, it's going to be rough times. Because uh, even for that West Ham game, it was a little unlucky how they conceded two of the goals. Like one, one of the goals was a penalty. And then the second goal was just a freak <laughs> deflected cross, as you said, from Oswaku, where it was also a really fast cross yeah. where I feel like it was within one frame. It went from the sideline to the back of the net. Yeah. And how do you even like Mendy's one of the best keepers in the Premier League right now. He couldn't even react in time to dive the the opposite direction back to save it to his near post. Mm -hmm. But that was just like a freak goal that happened at the very end of the game. So I feel like it was a slightly unlucky for that to happen. 
And I will also say Chelsea are still scoring goals. Although they conceded three, they scored two against West Ham and then scored three against Zenit. So I would feel like it's more of a time to freak out if it was two, three nils, losses, kind of things like that. But they're still scoring the goals, which is good. And with two starting 11s that almost were almost completely different. Because against Zenit, they played that youth player, Saar. And then like that back line was different under Kepa as well for that second game. So I think that changeup, it might have been another factor. It's just they just happened to concede another three. But it was also just like a much different team. So I think it's just a coincidence, if anything. But it's surprising to see a Chelsea side, regardless of who's playing under Tuchel, concede three goals at all and then see him concede twice in a row. So I think, yeah. if anything, this is kind of like a phenomenon. <laughs> we just got a point. I was like, whoa, this actually happened. Because like we're just used to seeing Chelsea concede just one goal at yeah. most under Tuchel. So having yeah, been this really solid happen, under him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a bit weird. I, but I, I agree with you that I think it's just kind of a blip in the road. But uh, real quickly on West Ham, David Moyes has beaten Chelsea, Manchester United, Man City. He beat Liverpool, right? He did beat think, Liverpool. Or he drew against Liverpool. It's either they drew or they, they beat him. Let me just but no, he beat they, Lester, no, no, they beat him. They yeah, they beat Liverpool. They beat Leicester City. Yeah, Smitty. I remember. I was sad. Yeah. I was sad that weekend. So he's beaten every top club this season. And beat Arsenal too. I, th- I think he beat Arsenal. Or they, I think they actually lost that game. But um, yeah, David Boyce, man. He's doing wonders there. But I think that's like the perfect club. You know how we say that a Brendan Rodgers type is perfect for Leicester City or something like that? I feel like David Moyes, I feel like that's the perfect size club for him. A club that isn't shooting to win the title, but a club that's just like, okay, if we can get into the Champions League or Europa League, maybe one or two seasons, that's a win for us. Or if we can just upset some of the big teams every now and again, that's a win for us. I think that's the perfect you know, type of way David Moyes can kind of thrive in. I don't think he's that good of a manager where he can have the expectation of coming in to win every game and to challenge for titles, but West Ham is like the perfect expectation-wise club for him. I also agree with um, having that kind of expectation set on the players that play for West Ham too, where it's just like not only, I mean, you know, Mikel Antonio, like their (laughs) star man up top, he's basically in his prime and I don't know if he's trying to make another move to like a bigger club or anything like that, but, you know, he's kind of found his match made in heaven at West Ham and also just players that kind of been, been segmented off from bigger teams like Kurt Zuma, Angelo Obana from Juventus, and then you no, know, I guess Ben Rama came from Brentford, which yeah. is a little different. But like their star man, um, Declan Rice. Yeah, Declan young. Rice. Originally, he was on Chelsea. Yeah, Chelsea when Academy. he was a youth player, and then he was booted at the age of fourteen. So he just came back to haunt them, which I still don't think is like a big deal. Because like let's let's be real, if he was still at Chelsea right now, would he be the same Declan Rice? I don't think so, guys. I yeah. feel like certain journeys people take, certain things that happen to players affect who they became eventually. Like right now, I feel like Declan Rice is the best player that he is now because of his journey being removed from Chelsea and yep. then going to West Ham. Whereas I feel like if he stayed at Chelsea... Even Mason Mount wasn't even... Yeah, that too. Yeah, he followed Frank Lampard to Derby County and then back to Chelsea. So I feel like that those kind of forks in the road or those kind of meanders do help players because like I feel like we wouldn't hear these two names if they just stayed where they were and who knows they might not even been playing football (laughs) for all we know so I feel like that's kind of the part of it but basically West Ham is full of these players that are kind of also on the the same train of 
being the dark horse team, being a team that's like on the fringes of just upsetting teams and actually doing it, but also being okay. If it's like, you know what, if we didn't make, if we didn't, <laughs> of course they want to win the title, but it's just like also at the same time, it's like, we got close. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> so like our expectations are we're here and then we just keep exceeding them. And that's a pretty good way to, to sell it for themselves too. So that also keeps morale up. I yeah. mean, even for this West Ham team, if you look at it for the past four years, they were fighting relegations at time. That's true. So being in this spot, I feel like it'd be on the moon if you're a West Ham fan as well. So just yeah. everyone's on board. It's a good time to be a Hammers fan. It's Hammer time. Yeah, it's Hammer time, man. You guys keep upsetting everyone. That's mm-hmm. any, like any semi-big club in England. But yeah, West Ham, they uh, somehow can continue to make the miraculous comebacks or the miraculous wins. Um, and then Liverpool, it was the uh, Wolverhampton Wolves-Liverpool game. Oddly enough, this game, um, was actually Diego Jota's birthday. I knew that because I was working this game, but uh, he had a golden opportunity to um, put Liverpool through and then somehow missed the goal, even though there was only two defenders. And oddly enough, Connor Cody made the block, even though I think you always say there's a joke that Connor Cody, whenever he plays against Liverpool, he always gets a red card or always like throws them a bone. Uh, but this time he saved the shot, you know, the last minute shot from Diego Jota. But yeah, I was literally thinking, I was like, Cody, what are you doing, man? Yeah. <laughs> like, usually you're supposed to, it's like the Rafa Benitez thing for everything. It's like, you know, supposed to just, you know, let it go in. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I thought you're a Liverpool fan. Yeah. I know so he's was, captain of Wolves, but I mean, yeah, it was an odd help, miss. Help a brother out. Yeah, it was an odd miss from Shota, but uh, it all worked out because Divock Origi in the 94th minute, you know, literally the last, probably almost kick of the game, wins it for Liverpool. And this guy, does it again for Liverpool. I mean, the corner taken quickly, Champions League final, game against Arsenal, that goal against Everton. I mean, the guy is the just... Doink. Yeah. yeah the, the guy has just built a a resume or kind of the expectation that if Liverpool need a clutch goal, he'll somehow pull through. And he just keeps on doing it. I don't know how he does it. He hasn't done it for a while, I will admit, to the point where I even believe over the summer, <laughs> I was mentioning, I was like, maybe he lost it. Maybe he just doesn't have that clutch gene anymore. Maybe it's time he doesn't, you know, maybe he might not have that motivation to just come off the bench every time. Maybe once more minutes. But, you know, maybe it might be time to move on from Divock Origi, as sad it is to say. But he kind of stuck through and then he he made another magical moment for Liverpool. A man who I feel like is above the term super sub because, you know, a super sub, he can come in and get the goals here and there, maybe change the game. But Divock Origi, the time he scores is just so clutch that I feel like it's almost his own category. Like he not only changes the game for Liverpool, but it changes momentum. He helped him go win a whole Champions League run and then ultimately scored one of the winning goals for the Champions League final. And that's insane. Like, you, you know, that'd be almost underrating him if you just say, or like an understatement just to say he's a super sub. Like this guy is a clutch sub. I don't even know what the term would be. Maybe Uber sub, <laughs> whatever's above super. Game winning sub. Yeah, game winning sub, something like that. But it's really hard to find a player that has like that ice in his veins, that that clutch effect where when you need a goal in a really high pressure situation, he has the technical abilities to do it and to get that goal. Because I mean, I feel like Divock Origi, whenever he starts, it's like he's... It's not the same effect for some reason. It's like it's you kind of know what to expect, but it's just he just doesn't produce the same. And he plays significantly more minutes when he starts as opposed to his total time coming off the bench. But he has the same number of goals almost as coming off the bench as he does starting. (laughs) 
and which is insane. So I feel like he makes the most out of his minutes when he does come off the bench because maybe you have that mental kind of thought where it's like, all right, I'm only playing 30 minutes. Let's just go ham the whole 30 minutes. Whereas when you do start, sometimes you're thinking, well, I have to last a whole 90 minutes. So (laughs) maybe I won't go for that sprint. Maybe I'll, you know, won't track back as quickly. You know, at least I have that because I'm not fully fit (laughs) all the time (laughs) when I play soccer. It's like, you know what? That guy has the run. I'll get him the next time. (laughs) Whereas maybe for Divock Origi, it's like, all right, it's time. I got to do something. I'm coming off the bench. I got to make the impact. Mm -hmm. Maybe it might be a mental thing, but it's just really interesting to see where like coming off the bench, it's just so different of a player. Whereas like, you know, other super subs, quote unquote, that you can think of like Chicharito, um, Oliver Giroux, when they start versus when they come off the bench. I mean, yeah, they do score off the bench, but also at times you still see them score when they start. Like you still see Oliver Giroux get the goal when he starts for Arsenal or Chelsea or Chicharito when he starts for the country of Mexico. He's usually like the star man. Like they're not going to bench Chicharito just because he's known as a super sub. So, but for Origi, it's like, no, you, got, you just got to make sure he stays on the bench first, no matter what. <laughs> and then you bring him on. So that's just one of the, the kind of goofy things about Origi. It's like he has a whole following from Liverpool fans just because of his clutch like tendencies. Like he's a Liverpool legend just because he comes off the bench. And I don't know if you can really say that about many other players. Yeah. Like he's literally down in history now at this point for not only doing the like doing the biggest things on the biggest stages once or twice, but at this rate, like six or seven times. And there's not really players you can like kind of note for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think he's just on a category of his own, but I think uh, Jurgen Klopp said before he uh, brought him out, he just said, just go be D- Divac Origi when he took, like when he subbed him on, I think in the 70 minute or the 77th minute or something like that, which is just crazy. That's, that's when you know you have to use your own name as an adjective. Yeah. Just go be, just go be you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just go be you. Yes, go be yes. <laughs> but it, I mean, it, it's just honestly astonishing. I mean, I think you kind of summarized it perfectly is that he's just kind of cat- category of his own of just being a clutch player where he just scores those clutch goals. And I don't know how he continues to do it. He's kind of been Liverpool's luck charm during Klopp's era here. It's just whenever they need a goal or whenever they need something, they just bring him on and he just manages to do something. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is a huge victory because Chelsea dropped points and Liverpool needed to win this because Manchester City also won their game. So this was a huge one because if they drop points against Wolves, that uh, not saying it's a nail in the coffin in the title race, but those two points could come back and haunt them um, when it comes like towards April or May when you're trying to decide who's going to be the title winner. Mm-hmm. And right now, that day in particular, I think Yesh and I were discussing it right before the podcast, but... That particular Saturday, there are three different teams that are at the top of the table at some point during the day. Because I believe Chelsea was at the top of the table first, but then they lost. Yeah. And Liverpool won, leapfrogged them. And then Man City won and then leapfrogged Liverpool because they already had a point ahead. So now it's basically three teams all separated by just two points. It's crazy. At the top. So it's not the four horse race anymore <laughs> that we kind of deemed at the very beginning with Manchester United. They kind of slid to six right now and they're nine points behind Chelsea but this three horse race though it's still it's still <laughs> ongoing and we'll see how it goes because in Christmas time teams play two games a week and I was just looking at my own schedule just to see what the games look like going ahead and if you just look at the Christmas period in between Christmas to New Year's there's almost a game like every day it's, crazy. <laughs> it's just a little overwhelming to kind of see so 
I, I feel like the table can change really quickly in this next month. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, make note of it now for what the table is and then just look back literally a month from now. It could be points difference, not just two points. It could be maybe five, six, which is pretty significant in yeah. this point of the season because we're halfway once you hit uh, New Year's. Just wild. The season's gone by so fast. I know. <laughs> oh. But uh, yeah, <laughs> as Tyler mentioned, Liverpool, another big victory, um, somehow escaping, you know, the claws of a draw, thanks to Divock Origi and his clutchness coming up again Divock. for them. Uh, but one team that arguably probably needs a bit of clutch factor, or one player is uh, Aubameyang for Arsenal. Um, Everton ended up beating uh, Arsenal 2-1 to one at Goodison Park. An Everton team that, I don't know if we if you remember last week, we were talking about how bad they were because I think they were on a five-game or four-game losing streak and Rafa Benitez was kind of on the hot seat. Um, and they actually went into this game after they fired their sporting director too. So things were kind of on the crash and burn for Everton, but somehow they managed to beat Arsenal. And Arsenal, I, I wrote this down because I wanted to point it out. Ever since that 10-match unbeaten streak, when we thought, okay, you know, maybe Arsenal are kind of like, you know, they got things rolling again. Um, they've had a loss, a win, a loss, and a loss. So they've had three losses in a span of four games, which is not great form. Mikel Arteta, once again, questions are being asked from Arsenal fans and also um, pundits, just general pundits of, is this guy the guy to bring Arsenal back to glory? And there was actually an interesting point from a Arsenal, I guess, like full-time account. Um, has a pretty big following. I can't remember the account name, but they said that um, Mikel Arteta isn't a terrible coach, but it's still yet to be proven whether he's a really good manager. Like we know that he's a good assistant coach and a good, you know, secondary coach like he was under Pep Guardiola. But in terms of being a manager, um, they said that, you know, we're seeing that, yeah, obviously he's learning a lot on the job and he's learning a lot of the mistakes he made in the beginning. He's not really making as much, but he said, unfortunately, it may be one of those things where Arsenal won't be the team that will get the full benefits of Mikel Arteta, the manager. And it's almost like Mikel Arteta and his time at Arsenal could be summarized as a workshop for him getting better as a manager. And then another club he goes to will get the full benefits of like the full Mikel Arteta way, which I thought was a pretty interesting perspective. And I think um, that makes sense because a lot of these, I guess the trend that was going on was handing the range to a club to a former legend or a former player as their first job um, that was kind of the trend that was going on and Arsenal picked Mikel Arteta to kind of be that guy and you know it's what year three under Mikel Arteta and there's still question mm-hmm. marks being asked about the way he plays the system he adopts um, you know people are still questioning me you know Pierre Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, um, after he got that mega contract, after winning them the FA Cup, he hasn't been anywhere near the same type of player. He's fallen off completely. Lacazette, nowhere to be seen. And Ketia still kind of meh. I mean, they have good youngsters, but um, it just kind of brings up the question is maybe Arteta kind of just like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer where he'll go on these kind of like crazy runs to save his job, but maybe at the end of the day, he just simply isn't the right guy to kind of take them to that next step of being back to being European powerhouses. I feel like the expectation for Mikel Arteta was a little different just because he worked under Pep Guardiola. So I feel like even when we first talked about him, it was like, oh, maybe he can kind of steal some notes and then just bring that over to Arsenal. And then Arsenal all of a sudden kind of play like Pep Guardiola's Tiki Taka yeah. like a little bit. But 
I feel like it more so became Mikel Arteta trying to bring back that passing like Wenger style where they kind of set up for beautiful goals and they lose beautifully, but also score beautifully. But I mean, since then, we've seen them go on streaks like at the very beginning of the season, they're <laughs> we thought they're going to get relegated at some points and they went on a hot streak. But, you know, it was kind of like a weird streak just because they didn't really face that many good teams. And then yeah. sure enough, of the three teams they lost to in the last four games, it was Liverpool they lost to, Manchester United they lost to, and then Everton. And Everton has also been kind of, they're, they're due for a win finally. Even in this game, they had two goals that are disallowed from Richarlison. Richarlison could have gotten a hat trick yeah. from just being, but it was just offside twice for two of his goals. And then the team they did beat was almost dead last, if not dead last right now, uh, Newcastle. So it's it's a little bit of fool's gold from Arsenal. But at the same time, for Mikel Arteta to say, if he goes to a new team too, he get like the full effect. It's like, I don't know yet. I don't know if I, like if you were to bring Mikel Arteta to Manchester United right now, do you feel like he'd be any better than like a Ralph Radnick right now? Or even Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? I, mean, I feel like he'd probably be worse because at least with Ralph, you have a backup or backstory of like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Not to say mm-hmm. Mikel Arteta doesn't know what he's doing, but you know, you never know sometimes. Does he actually know what he's doing? <laughs> or yeah, is he just, just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, is it, or, decisions. Yeah, you know, is it kind of like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer where, you know, they do have, it's not like they don't have a system. Obviously, they have some sort of system at play, but are they kind of just making moves to kind of save their job or are they just making, you know, questionable decisions because they don't really know how to handle the high pressure situations and they're just kind of playing off the cuff and, you know, just hoping that one of their star players can kind of just bail them out occasionally. Mm-hmm. So to kind of answer your original question of just like, is is Mikhail Arteta basically just another Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? I feel like, yes, Dang. <laughs> it's just the Arsenal version. The except Art. Arteta does have a plan, at least. I think that's the thing. Like, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had, like, a few ideas for what he wants to do to maybe get a win. But Arteta has, like, a playing style he's trying to aim for and a particular kind of setup he wants with his team. Like, he wants everyone to be, like, a passive kind of team and things like that. But it's not really certain that his tactics and things are, like, a surefire way to get the most amount of wins possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were to look at the same kind of version of doing like a pass heavy first team like Pep Guardiola. That's been like a proven tactic to now show it's like, all right, they're going to win majority of their games. Granted, like the players are better, but under <laughs> Mikel Arteta though, it's like, you don't really know if his kind of setup is a for sure far away to like win the most games. Like you just know, at least there is a plan. And I, and I will mention too, there are certain players that maybe just, as you mentioned, like, uh, Obama Yang, who's just not his best anymore. There's like a, a, a clear notable chance near the end of the game against Everton. He just straight up missed. It wasn't even on target. It was just yeah. not really one on one with the keeper, but it was an open shot where he, yeah, if he got on target, on it would target. definitely would have. Yeah, it would definitely would have challenged Jordan Pickford in goal. But he just straight up whiffed it left, like just wide left. And yeah. Arsenal fans were livid. They're just like, oh, he's done. <laughs> it's like man can't even get it on target. Yeah, I, so, I know a lot of Arsenal fans are very upset with Aubameyang and just, I think that the problem is, I think a lot of Arsenal fans, they do like the youngsters like Martinelli, Saka, obviously they like Ramsdale. They they like, they like the youngsters they kind of brought in, but they have a big problem with kind of the older people that they're, you know, Lacazette, Aubameyang <laughs> um, and Ketia there. I feel like they're still, 
I feel like that the jury's out on him. I feel like the people are kind of done with Enketia. Arsenal fans are. Yeah, so it's just really weird. Like I, I don't know because I think also Arsenal fans are kind of upset still at Arteta. They A lot of Arsenal fans still question whether he's actually good enough to be the manager. And then I know Thierry Henry has even questioned at times, even during the 10 match and beat streak, of whether uh, Mikel is you know good enough to be the, the man for Arsenal. So it's just a weird vibe with Arsenal. Some I just it's hard to really it's really hard to pinpoint like what the mood is half the time because you know are, are you know Arsenal fans are they happy are they not happy are they satisfied is there something a bit wrong I, I just always feel like there's something a bit off under Mikel Arteta's reign like I just never feel like they've ever truly been happy under Mikel Arteta. I mean, if you think about all of our Arsenal friends, it's always like, man, they're never happy. <laughs> it's just sadness most of the time. So you never know. It's just, it's like, as Prince said in a song, it's like, you know, she's never satisfied. My mom. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just kind of things like that. Uh, but for Arsenal itself, it's just also just so confusing too, where Sometimes you've even seen points where Arteta just lost the locker room at times, where it's like, you know, Shaka just gets a red card. He just Gwendouzi. <laughs> he gets a pat on the butt from Arteta <laughs> as he walks into the locker room. It's like, what the heck was that? Yeah, Gwendouzi so, doing something stupid. Yeah. And you never really know still with that. It's just so much uncertainty there. But I guess a good question to kind of conclude for this part is just, is Arsenal, you feel like, plateaued on the rise or just on the decline or it's like what do you think because it's so confusing for me i would just say like they're almost plateaued into just being a europa league team at best yeah that's um that's just really hard to swallow because you know arsenal is a mega club and i think we've always had this conversation like almost every season of where they were like where the expectations at but uh they're this mega club that won so much in the early 2000s, late 90s. I mean, they were the biggest up there. They were, they were one of the three, four biggest clubs in, in Europe and in England. And obviously, they still are. But, uh, you know, obviously, it just hasn't been – they haven't been anywhere near the Champions League for so many years. And now, I do agree with you. I think they've almost kind of plateaued. And I think that they're hoping or they're banking that the young players they've signed develop quickly and can develop into kind of world-class talents almost – similar to Barcelona where they're kind of in such a catastrophe where, you know, they're basically banking on young players to come through and develop into world superstars to bring them back to glory again. But, you know, I do agree you have to rely on the youth, but just chucking youth out there without, you know, the senior squads to advise them, I feel like that's also a recipe for disaster because that really won't allow the youth to really take in and fully develop because, I mean, look at Mason Greenwood. He's a, He's turning into becoming like a really good striker, but, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer slowly but surely kind of worked him way, like worked his way into the United squad. He didn't just throw him out in there as an 18-year-old. And I think Arsenal need to play it safe a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's just really hard to just chuck all your faith into youth and hope that they all turn into world superstars. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're, we're both kind of saying, too, where it's like, they have a, a, like a potential for like a high ceiling with the youth and like that's their hope. But I feel like at the same time, it's just capped where although it's like it could be here, they can't reach that cap just because of Arteta and also just the kind of setup they have right now where it's just like that switch to go from plateauing and hitting this, you know, Europa League kind of standard to eventually challenging again for Champions League and fighting for the title again as they used to. 
that jump is it just seems like there's like a brick wall in between and unless they change something significant they're just gonna be stuck there and just relying on hope to get back into it and that's what they're really doing right now in my opinion it's just like arsenal just kind of living on hope yeah that's that's a sad part i think the i guess last thing is that their players um i you you put up a good point about their players there's a high ceiling there but a lot of times when you rely on youth you may have like five youth academy players but oftentimes maybe they're like one out of the five turns into the superstar maybe two out of five turn into consistent you know maybe backup starting 11 it's very rare that all five turn into gems you know um and we see that with all all across academies and i know arsenal have a lot of youth that they're trying to play right now with you know nuno Tavares, Lakanga. Saka, Martinelli, you know, you know, Ramsdale's like 24, but, you know, hope that he can develop into a big time keeper. Those are, that's what I listed off like maybe five or six players. There's not a guarantee that all six will turn into world-class superstars, you know, maybe Saka out of all of them has the highest potential and he probably most likely will hit it, but maybe Martinelli just ends up becoming kind of a mediocre-ish player, or I'm not saying he will, but there's a chance that more often than not, they might just kind of plateau in being mediocre players. So that, that, that's the that's the worry when you put too much faith in the youth is that they could a lot of times just end up being more mediocre than actually world-class talents. That's a really good point because like look at Anketia. <laughs> look at him. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like he's still third string and yeah. <laughs> he hasn't really made that jump. And if you think about it too, it's like there's not many teams historically where it's like almost every youth academy product turned out to be superstars like the only one i can really think of is barcelona with like messi iniesta Xavi. they just got really lucky Sergio Busquets. like yeah. that that academy also is like legendary but also at the same time it's like you can't be <laughs> hoping something like that happens at yeah. arsenal the only thing so, only other one would i would say is class of 92 where they had skulls oh, yeah. gigs beckham and then the neville brothers but Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of like once in a generation type thing, you know, like same with Barcelona where they just got really lucky with the type of players they were able to produce during that time. Because mm-hmm. look at where they are now in the Europa League, <laughs> like not even Arsenal. Your Arsenal's not even in there. Not even in Europe. Not even in Europe. Yeah. Gosh dang. Oh, man. But as we oh, as we said in the beginning of the season, we think Arsenal are going to be going through a lot of ups and downs just because of how young the squad is. And I guess this is one of uh, another one of their blips and maybe they might have another peak again. But um, that's we'll, we'll wait to see if that happens. But um, is moving on to the final section, our preview section. Um, interesting note is that this week, the uh, Tottenham-Brighton game, we weren't going to preview it, but uh, uh, it is actually getting postponed because of a, I guess, a rise in COVID-19 cases in the Tottenham camp. Um, they've actually had to postpone their Europa Conference League matchup um, as well because of the situation that's going on with Tottenham. So um, very interesting. It's it's just coming back up again, COVID with the new variant. So we'll, remains to be seen uh, how this will affect future fixtures if more positive cases kind of come up around different teams. But as of right now, Tottenham are kind of like the only club that's been hit with it big in the Premier League. So remains to be seen what happens after that. But uh, I guess moving on to the... I guess finally the preview section. There's some pretty decent matchups. No, I I would say blockbuster top six versus top six matchup. But um, I guess to start it off, we have Chelsea, Leeds, United. Um, Leeds are kind of been on the downfall. They haven't been the best. Patrick Bamford, I think, actually injured himself while celebrating, I guess, the equalizer in their last <laughs> matchup. And they have been struggling with injuries. I think Calvin Phillips is out. Patrick Bamford will be out. They've just had a... 
a bad string of injuries. And I think this is the perfect game for Chelsea to rebound at Stamford Bridge. So I, I think they might actually win this game 3-0. I, I forgot which player it was that injured himself doing a front flip. Oh, <laughs> I think I remember that. I, I can't remember the player, but I think I do remember that story. That's so goofy because I mean, like when you know when you're a kid and you play FIFA and like you just watch players on TV do like flips and crazy celebrations. He's like, oh, I'm gonna try that, and you hurt yourself on the pitch. We're just playing with friends. <laughs> Not saying that happened to me more than once, but <laughs> uh, I mean for Leeds as well. I feel like Bamford was such a key cornerstone of the team last season, which helped them get to that mid-table spot pretty comfortably. But this season's been like a complete 180. It's whole been, team has been a 180. Yeah, whole team, Rafinha. Rafinha has been the only good player for Leeds. And Ailing at times, <laughs> the right back. Yeah. But, I mean, it was such, it's so weird to see Leeds struggling this poorly. Like, under Bielsa, too. I mean, there was some predictions. I, I think you mentioned this, Yash, last season, where it's like, you know, they might cool off really quickly, where it's just they, have, they start off hot, but then they'll cool off. And we're seeing that cool off happen in the second season under Bielsa in the Premier League but I mean it's I feel like this team had so much potential where they shouldn't be here but here here we are like in 15th place but it's not going to help facing Chelsea Chelsea after conceding of course as we mentioned three goals in two games in a row you know Tuchel was probably pretty upset (laughs) (laughs) and I mean it was a bit of a fluke I I feel like at the same time too so not saying they're going to shut out Leeds but I think it'll be like a 2-1 oh okay Leeds as well, their defense this season has not been great. Millier yeah. last season was one of the hotter keepers as well. He had a decent amount of clean sheets, but this season his defense isn't really doing him any favors. Mm-hmm. So I think the trend will continue. Leeds are going to struggle and Chelsea's going to get the win. That's an interesting one. I think um, we're both predicting wins, but you got them conceding a goal with Chelsea. But I, I think they get a, a clean sheet there. But uh, moving on to the next game, we got Arsenal versus West Ham. Uh this is a big game for Arsenal because they're at the Emirates. They're playing, seeing a really hot West Ham team, and Arsenal kind of on a kind of a slide right now, a dip. But you know, I I want to have faith in Arsenal that they might be able to pull out a point. But I I think West Ham, the way they've been playing, is just they somehow managed to find a way to always win. So I think they could. I think West Ham could sneak away with a a two one victory at the Emirates again against another big six opponent. After looking at, or not looking, but like watching the Everton-Arsenal matchup where Arsenal just so open against Richarlison, I feel like it could be the same kind of effect having Mikel, or Mikel Antonio up there or even Ben Rama because, or even Jared Bowen. We didn't even mention him. Yeah. So I feel like this team is just, it just feels more set. It just feels like they have a better game plan facing, you know, bigger opposition, quote unquote, with Arsenal considered yeah. bigger opposition. But, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But I, I don't know if Arsenal is that big right now at the same time. So it might kind of even out. I actually think it might be a... I don't know if I want to say 2-2. Two, two. Mm. I, I want to give West Ham the win just because they're also just in a better run of form somewhat. Because Arsenal just kind of rough. But, you know, I'll say 2-2. Two, two. I'll say 2-2. Two, 2-2. Two. Two, two. Okay, okay. Um, that'll be an exciting matchup. Hopefully, that actually comes true. But we got a mm-hmm. uh, I got two Darby one. Right there. Yeah, I got I got two one West Ham. Tyler's got two two, a two two draw. Then finally, um, I guess narrative wise, this is probably the biggest game. Um, we have Liverpool versus Aston Villa. Obviously, 
in any normal sense, this game would you just probably chalk it up to like a Liverpool dub and like no one would kind of bat an eye. But this one has got some interesting storylines, primarily because Steven Gerrard would be returning um, to Anfield, but this time as an opposing manager. Obviously, he's the manager for Aston Villa. Uh, it'll be interesting to kind of the he'll probably obviously get a warm reception, but the type of feelings he'll be facing when he faces his like, you know, the club that he became a legend at the, you know, the club that made him famous um, with Aston Villa. Obviously, he's going to go in there to try to seek a win, but he failed against Man City to get a big win. Um, and this game will be interesting because a lot of emotions are going to be running high on this one. But I think Liverpool are just too good of a team um, to kind of let this, I guess, victory a potential victory slip by so i think they i think they'll win um three one i think unfortunately for steven gerrard i don't think his aston villa side will be good enough to uh pick up a victory at anfield or at least get a draw there i think it'll be a three one liverpool win and he's coming home stevie <laughs> g back at anfield this is such a huge storyline for liverpool fans at least i'm even wearing the last jersey he wore during his final season at liverpool yeah right now but i mean it's been years Man, I feel old, but <laughs> I mean, Aston Villa, of course, under Steven Gerrard in his first, I believe, four games, they've won three, lost one. And I, I unfortunately, I think it's going to be another loss for Aston Villa just because even in this midweek fixture against AC Milan, Liverpool already threw to the next yeah, stages. Yeah, they still of, won. And they still won. They had the professionalism to beat AC Milan 2-1. So I think under Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa, although it's going to be a lot of you know, friendly hearts and just a lot of respect for one another. I think Liverpool student to do the job. They kind of ended the streak also last week against Wolves of scoring two goals per game mm-hmm. every week. But I think this game, it'll be another 2-0. So I'm just going to have that streak continue on again. And it'll be 2-0 for Liverpool at home. But at nice. least DBG will be well-received. Yeah. No, I got I yeah I got a three one victory for Liverpool. You got two nil, so keeping the clean sheet there. But uh, as we both said, we both think that Stevie G will get a pretty warm reception from the Anfield crowd. I think they'll be pretty excited to see their former legend come back. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm gonna yeah. watch that game. Well, of course I'm gonna watch that game, but <laughs> I'm gonna be excited to finally watch a Liverpool versus Villa matchup for once. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be it'll be fun to see how that whole thing kind of gets shaken up at Anfield, but. Yeah, that kind of um, does it for us for Season 4, Episode 134. As we always say, you can give us a follow at Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel at Pod, where you can catch video versions of the podcast. Um, and if you are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, you can uh, leave this podcast a rating or review. Um, it helps get us boosted and helps us get us noticed to other people that are on the Apple Podcast platform. Um, but if not, just taking the time to listen to the show is more than enough and we do appreciate it. But if you wanted to help out whether writing the review or um, recommending this podcast to anyone that is interested in soccer or put the Premier League, that's more than helpful. We appreciate any of the help that we get and we thank you all for the support that you've shown us throughout these four years or these four seasons, I guess. So it's been, a, it's been a while, but we do appreciate all the support wherever we get it. So thank you guys once again for listening. And that kind of wraps up season four, episode 134 of the podcast. Peace. Peace.